0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, as we look in the Bible to Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 27, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The End of the Night.
1: Night as you know not just a time of day when the sun doesn't shine, but night is also a metaphor for a great many things, including injustice, wickedness, the inability to gain moral or spiritual direction. The Bible often speaks in these terms. You know, for instance, consider Isaiah 45, verse seven. It's a puzzling verse to many, but it's a very important verse. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, people often puzzle over this verse because, you know, in their estimation, how can God create calamity? But of course, He does. It's often His judgment. But putting that matter aside, notice how the Bible treats light and darkness. Light is a metaphor here of well-being. Darkness, well, it speaks of calamity. Again, notice how the word darkness is treated in Jeremiah 2, verse 6. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness. This passage doesn't tell us that the sun never shone in Sinai, but the passage uses darkness as a metaphor for a place that seems devoid of mercy, a land that shows so little grace, a land where you can easily die. Well, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. And it's not as if the Bible is the only document that speaks about this. I mean, you've heard this kind of language in everyday life. Someone may talk about a dark time in their life, and by that they mean a time of suffering or a time when they were persecuted, a time when their marriage ended, a time when they were diagnosed with a serious illness, a time when all comfort and mercy fled from them. And when you think about that time and when you cast about for a way to describe that period in your life. I mean, the very best way of explaining it is to use the word darkness. Now, when we come to the end of Revelation 21, the chapter of the Bible that describes the new Jerusalem, we find that John describes it using the word light. And for John, light is more than metaphorical. I mean, it is literal, but it's also metaphorical. The brilliance of the light of that city has a great deal to do with what we can expect when we think of our eternal future. Hell is a world of flames, but the flames are dark, they're black. Heaven is a world of light, a light so brilliant we can hardly imagine it. So let's read the entirety of our text and get a feel of it, and then let's break it down to see what it's saying. I'm reading Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So let's start with verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I've been making the point that Ezekiel's end-time temple, which is found in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, should not and cannot be confused with John's vision of the new Jerusalem. I mean, for one, John specifically denies that the city he sees has a temple at all. And for those who then argue that the city is a temple city, well, such language is simply not used in this text. John specifically mentions that the New Jerusalem has no temple because he says the city has no need for a temple. You know, in the First Testament, the temple served as a symbol for God's presence. It signaled that God was indeed among his people. I mean, let's just think about that for a moment and understand how that works. You know, the latter chapters in Exodus contained a detailed instruction on the building, what was then not a temple, but a tabernacle. It was made of poles and curtains, a tent, a portable structure that could move along with God's people as they moved. It was their house of worship. But as Exodus lays out the details for the tabernacle's construction, you know, Exodus 25 verse 8 says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so everything from the kinds of sacrifices to be offered, when they're to be offered, who is permitted to offer them, I mean, along with the incense that is kept burning, as well as the furnishings of the tabernacle, all of these spoke of something significant of both who God is, who the people of God are, how sin requires an atonement, for without it, God's people would be rejected and forsaken by God. The tabernacle helped God's people to know that not only was God among them, but it also helped them to understand why, when God was among them, why they weren't consumed. Now, eventually, the Israelites settled into the promised land, and the days of moving from one place to another came to an end. And and with that, the tabernacle comes to a permanent resting place in Jerusalem, the city that, that God had provided for David. Solomon then replaces the tabernacle with the temple and the glory of God filled that house and God declared that this was his dwelling place. In Psalm 132, it's it's one of the Psalms of ascent. You know, there are a series of Psalms that Israel would sing when the pilgrims would go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple during Passover and the other Jewish feast days. And you can imagine the pilgrims On a long walk, and perhaps, you know, they've been coming from Galilee, and when they come within eyesight of Jerusalem, the long line of pilgrims begin to sing songs that all of them knew. So, imagine them singing Psalm 132, verses 7 to 9. They would sing, "'Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might.'" Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. That is, God, come and settle on your temple and give us the grace to meet with you there as we go there to worship. That's the point of the temple. It's the meeting place. Go and meet with God. You know, but in time, given the sinful inclinations of unredeemed Israel, the Israelites began to imagine that the temple was a kind of a magical talisman. I mean, that is, they assumed that they could be as wicked as they wanted to be, and the temple would assure them that they're going to be all right. You have to only go to the seventh chapter of Jeremiah to get the idea. I mean, listen to the prophet's words they recorded in verses three and four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words." This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, Israel had thought because the temple is the dwelling place of God, well, the temple can't be destroyed. And as long as we live within the sight of the temple, we're going to be fine along with the temple. I mean, no enemy is gonna hurt us. And so God determined that the temple would be destroyed, not once, twice. And finally, we see that although the temple is God's determination to dwell among his people, it's not the assurance that our salvation depends on an external structure. And so, when we come to the new heavens and the new earth, we see that there will never be another temple. The era of a temple is now permanently behind the human race. The new Jerusalem will have no temple, says John, because the Lord God and the Lamb is its temple. So what does that mean? Well, actually, the meaning should be plain. The temple was a symbol of God's presence, His willingness to bless His people. But in the days to come, in the new heaven, in the new earth, there will be no need for that kind of a symbol, for the symbol will be replaced by the reality. We will see Him as He is the veil will be removed. The holy of holies is now among us. It would seem obscene to ever have a temple again, but John is still not done. He says, not only does the city have no temple, it also has no need for a sun or moon to shine on it. So, let me try a little illustration. Years ago, Kathy and I were on a tour on a very large underground cave. And at a certain time, the lights were turned out. And then for the first time, I experienced absolute darkness. And then after some time in the dark, our guide turned on one small light. It was the smallest of lights. But in that environment, it seemed like the most brilliant thing I had ever seen. Now, let me give you the opposite illustration. Imagine you were standing on the surface of the sun. I know that's not possible, but but imagine it. Now, imagine you turned on that very same light, the one my tour guide used in the cave. Well, what would be the result? Well, that same light that seemed so exquisite in the cave would not even be seen. The reason why no sun and moon are found in the New Jerusalem is the same reason the temple is not found there. The presence of a temple is meaningless and so also is the presence of any other source of light. The light and the glory of God are everywhere. That's the New Jerusalem.
0: Truth and Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth In Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth In Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth and Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today.
1: Revelation 21, 24 to 26 says, By its light will the nations walk, And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. You know, some commentators find this description to be confusing. I mean, for one, they wonder why the New Jerusalem has walls. Walls, as you remember, are a defense for a city. They are to be used in the day of attack. Well, since the new Jerusalem would have walls, you'd, you'd have to assume, you know, it's never going to be attacked, and, and that is so. But we did notice when we looked at this passage before that the walls represented the grace of God that allowed the redeemed to be there. And they also represented the righteous wrath of God, which would never allow the damned to enter. But now in this passage before us here, we have talk of nations who are walking from the light that comes from the city— and nations that enter into the city. So, who are those nations? I mean, after all, all of this description is, is after the last judgment. I mean, this is a description of the, the final order of things, when rebellion and sin and disobedience are forever vanquished. You know, one commentator wrote, and I quote, Taken literally, these verses suggest that in the new earth, there will be two companies of people the redeemed who inhabit the new Jerusalem, and the unregenerate nations of the earth who live outside the city, but who are influenced by its presence. You know, well, from that observation, this commentator then points out that there are those who have wondered whether we're still talking about the millennium here, in which there are nations who are influenced by the king who rules in Jerusalem, but who may in their own day rebel. But in our study of Revelation, we should see that this interpretation is just not possible at all. We followed the book of Revelation through a number of stages. The first was during the present era in which God's people remain faithful to Jesus through the spiritual warfare that makes up this world. Then Revelation moves to the time of the end when the Antichrist ratchets up the ancient spiritual warfare That's followed by the second coming of Christ and the setting up of his millennial kingdom. Now, once that's over, comes the judgment. Then comes the eternal reward or eternal damnation of every single human being. And with that come those wonderful words of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So you have understood the new heavens to refer to the cosmos, the new earth to refer to this earth, which is destroyed and then made new or resurrected. The new Jerusalem is the city of God come down to earth so that the barrier between God and man is forever removed. All all the inhabitants of earth have access into the immediate presence of God. Now, notice again that in the new Jerusalem, the gates are never shut. Remember, there are 12 gates into the city named after the 12 tribes. These gates symbolize that in the future age, access into the immediate presence of God will never be denied of any of the redeemed people of God. The door is never closed, the, the drawbridge is never pulled up, the, the night never closes in when one must wait for morning. That must mean that what John sees is a situation where human beings move in and out of the city. Now, I'm about to use a little imagination here, and I'm going to leave it to you to judge whether or not what I'm saying seems to square with what we're reading. But in my imagination, I assume that the nations of the earth live in their respective dwelling places. I also assume that just like in the millennium, the nations journeyed to Jerusalem to worship at important high days. I assume that some form of praise erupts from the nations as they approach Jerusalem to worship. Something, something like what we read in the Psalms of Ascent, that the nations are singing in the languages of the earth, shouting their praise as they approach the new Jerusalem. They're, they're filled with joy and, and anticipation, hearts overwhelmed with eagerness to be in the place Uh, of gold as clear as glass, and in the place where they can look directly at God, and yet their lives are spared. That is, from my vantage point, the the nations don't permanently live in the new Jerusalem, but the nations live on the redeemed earth, but that Jerusalem is their highest delight. But you might stop and say, well, what? You know, are you saying that you imagine there to be nations in the world to come? And in, in answer to that, I assume that there are but perhaps not as we configure them today. You know, for instance, in our world, nations come into being as a direct response to a difference between them and another people group. Nations go to war against other nations and their differences often result in misunderstanding and suspicion and even in death. But it seems to me in the new heavens in the new earth, national differences can exist, but these national differences are not the cause of division. Instead, they're the reason for praise. If the nations of the earth walk in the light of the city of Jerusalem, that means that the nations of the earth have their own cultural life, but they direct all things in praise of the one true God who is their God. His laws, his precepts, his his ways inform and direct everything in their national life. And so it seems to me that the world to come is a world of cultural uniqueness, of creativity, of cultural achievement, of unique ways of interacting and living out of life. I imagine that food and music and the arts and human technology and achievement and that advancement of human ideas and of national goals will all be a part of the new world to come. Human life will not be static. It will grow, it will achieve, it will develop uniquely in various places. And that, it seems, is the explanation of the phrase that the nations of the earth bring their glory into the city. I think that John is envisioning a world in which whatever it is that nations accomplish, they will all accomplish to the glory of God. Imagine an invention in the world to come. Imagine a work of art that beautifies the lives of the redeemed. Whatever is painted or written or invented, whatever the nations produce— They joyfully come into the holy city and with great joy present their best before the one who made all these things possible. In order to understand that better, imagine, if you will, the present state of affairs. Nations on this side of the fall. We often invent weapons of war that allow one nation to gain strength over another. We know that ever since the end of the Second World War, many, many powerful nations have been in an arms race nuclear weapons, biological weapons, other technological weapons, anything to let the other nations of the world know that you'd better not mess with us. And what if the idea of besting another nation is now gone? In its stead is the desire to do all things to the glory of God, not just individually, but as a culture. And what if cultural uniqueness is not seen as a source of keeping score of who's ahead of whom or of racism? but rather as a celebration of the God of infinite variety who continues to inspire the redeemed human race from every culture and people and tribe and language and grouping of people to develop in such a way that all glory goes to God. It's hard to imagine this, but it does seem to be what Revelation is describing. It tells of real nations of the earth who walk in the light of the God who made them and who have developed their own unique glory and who bring that glory into the city and lay it before the feet of him who is worthy of all glory. Many of us are stunned with this view of heaven. We thought there was nothing to be invented in heaven because we thought that in heaven, well, we'd already know everything. That doesn't seem, at least to me, to be a biblical view of things. Only God knows all things, and through all ages, only God will be omniscient. We will be finite beings who live for eternity. But in that eternity, we'll grow and learn and develop and accomplish. But unlike our day, we'll never wonder if what we do is for God's glory or for our own selfish interests. I mean, such a struggle is going to be gone. And we will gladly present before God all that is noteworthy. And we will say, to you be all praise, for without your grace, I and we my people could never have accomplished this. That's the biblical view of heaven, real human civilizations that walk in the light of the glory of God. So let's focus again on verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a wonderful promise. Everything that redeemed human beings accomplish will enter the city, and yet not one thing will be unclean, All we do for all of eternity will be with unmixed motives. How do we know this is true? Well, we know it because those who are a part of the new order of things have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the future of every blood-washed child of God.
0: John, thanks for your message today. You know, I think it's interesting that uh, you've mentioned before that so many people describe Revelation as, as a bunch of images, but what we're really looking at is a place, an actual place. Jerusalem, people are coming, people are going, people live outside of Jerusalem. It's an actual physical place.
1: Yes, and I know, Ben, that there will be those that will take objection to what I've said. They'll say, you know, you're overly literal and it wasn't intended to be that way and yet Ben I would argue that it seems to be described literally I mean the dimensions of the place what it looks like or you know how the gold is different than any gold that we've that we've ever seen in this world I mean all of these kind of um, physical descriptions I, I can't help but read the book and it sounds so very much like John is describing a real physical place I think that's because he is and um, I love that by the way. <laughs> Thanks so much,
0: John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.
2: It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfield, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board!